When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to the Terrace Scottish Football Podcast. It's another dismal day in 2020, but who knows, maybe four slobs from central Scotland talking about books and films they like might just turn things around. It probably won't, but we'll give it a go all the same. My name is Craig Telfer, and today I am joined by three men who resemble a particularly disappointing bunch of contestants on Latter-day Blind Date. There's no lucky lady in this instance, I can assure you. Not first, he's come all the way from Ayrshire and he's hoping he'll be kill-winning your heart tonight. It's Craig Anderson. Hi, Craig. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. And believe me, I couldn't think of anyone for the other two, so that's it. And I've got uh, Tony Anderson next. Oh, hello, Craig. And Robert Borthwick. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, Robert. You have chosen not to turn on your webcam today. Uh, can you explain yourself? Uh, I am. Uh, I've just woken up. I'm lying down in my bed, uh, completely naked. So uh, it's, I just thought I'd, I'd save the lads uh, the bother of being distracted. Um, don't want to take anything away from the, the the festival of fun that we're about to have on this podcast. So I, I would thought, argue. It. I would add to it. But I would add to the festival of fun. Will you help if I now everyone, now to make you feel comfortable, Robert, for listeners there, that's Craig is now taking off his uh, dressing gown and is yeah. now sort of topless with us as well. And I'm now starting to get the need to do that myself. <laughs> well, I'm going to refrain. No, that's, that's fine. It's, it's, it's not for everyone. And, and no one can see this only. So it's, it's, really for, it's only really for Robert's benefit. This I'm just trying to make this as a, this is a safe space, Robert. If you, you, want to, uh, you, you want to take off your clothes, that's fine. <laughs> Of course, and it's your last, last day of your 20s as well, isn't it? Yes, it is indeed. It's, it's my, my 30th birthday tomorrow. So, Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. Big plans for it. 
Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Nah, no. Nah, I, I, I turned I turned thirty four um, about four weeks ago, and it was uh, it was very mediocre. I mean, there's obviously bigger things in the world going on just now than than uh, than me turning thirty four. But even so, even so. Now, if you listen, sorry, that sounded a bit self pitying there. Um, <laughs> do you feel do you feel differently, Robert? Do you feel differently about to turn thirty? No, I, I'm quite looking forward to. It. I'm kind of I'm, I'm done with my twenties now. Um, I, I feel that I've I've kind of achieved it. I've beat the final level boss uh, that was <laughs> so. Just just make me thirty. Just uh, just bring it on. And I think I'm the last of the terrace podcast to turn thirty. Actually, so. Joe's no, no, Joe's 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 just turned thirty-one. I think. Yeah. So we're just discussing everyone's age here. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is uh, so, sorry, the, the only other person is uh, John Callan. I believe is younger than me. Who? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, John. That's uh, that's that's not a that's that's not a dick. That's 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 not fair. You're you're, you're good company um, on the rare occasions you do contribute to the discussion. But anyway, we spent the last five minutes uh, just being a bit self-indulgent. So let's continue to do that with our traditional Saturday morning pop culture podcast. If you've listened to this show before, you'll know exactly what to expect. But if you're joining us for the first time, we're going to be looking at something we've enjoyed during the lockdown, something we're a bit ambivalent towards. We're going to review a classic movie and finish up with a recommendation for your ears. We'll start with something good. Craig Anderson, this is the first time you've appeared in the pop culture podcast, so tell us something good. What have you been enjoying? It's not the first time I've appeared. I think this is a good bit that you've got going for you just constantly get this wrong. Um, Why don't you tell us something you've enjoyed? Previously. Um, yeah, I was on, I was on with, uh, with, with Tony. Um, Were you? Yeah, we uh, yeah. did Drive. Yeah. Oh, anyway. I, I remember talking about Drive. Yeah, I remember talking about Drive. Anyway, um, the thing that I've enjoyed um, over the last few weeks has been uh, yoga. Really? Oh. I um, have always through my life been a particularly inflexible person, um, both both mentally and physically. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, I for some reason just thought, you know, when I was, I was trying to find something different to do, like I was trying all the like, when I've been stuck in the house, I do a lot of walking. Like just walking to the station, walking to get my lunch. Normally, when I'm out of work, and I'm like, I need to do something physical. You're not doing a lot of running, but you can't possibly do that every day. Well, some people can, but not me. And so I was trying to find things to do. I tried all these like exercise classes and you know, body pump or whatever these things that you can do at home. And I, I didn't like it, so I thought I'll try yoga. My wife's been doing it for for years, but I've always kind of just thought it would be kind of some sort of hippie nonsense, which it is to some extent. But actually. Um, I found it very useful. I found it like it's, it's a kind of break from everything as well. But like, there are, it is actually physically quite challenging. It's mm. not like I always thought oh, you're just kind of doing wee silly stretches, but there's a lot of kind of muscle stuff, and and I feel much better for it as a result. And it, and it is quite um, is it quite a soothing way of doing kind of um, exercise? Have is. Have you been doing it just with your wife or have you been following any guides or anything like that? Yes, I've been doing it on my own, but I've been watching, um, I think probably lots of people have started using it, yoga with Adrienne, who's a very famous person apparently for doing yoga. She's on YouTube and she's got like 5 million views or subscribers or whatever. So lots of people obviously like it and, and it's quite good because she kind of, it's not like too happy and she's quite funny actually. And then it's not. Like it's kind of there was like a beginner yoga for beginners video that she did that was the first one I watched and then I've kind of started doing other stuff and I quite like it like I find it quite 
quite nice. And then and the, the best thing is um, the, the reason I really like yoga is at the end there's a, a thing called Shavasana. It's like a pose that you do at the end where you basically just lie on your back um, and do nothing. And that's how it always finishes. So you're always like got something to look forward to where you can just essentially <laughs> lie down and do nothing, which is, is, um, is essentially my favourite thing to do. I probably, is it the sort of thing that anyone can really get into then? Yeah, I would imagine so. I, I mean, I, I, as I said, like have no upper body strength, no physical. Like I, I run a lot, so I, I, I'm fit in that sense, but mm. I, I don't have muscles particularly or anything like that. And so I just started doing it, and I've already actually felt myself like a bit more good. You know, you feel you feel better I think, when you wake up the next day and stuff as well. So it's interesting. You, you talk about yoga. I think think for, for myself, I always thought yoga. You, you describe it perfectly. Like Happy bollocks. It was practiced by sort of self-serving Western people with uh, who have listened to one too many Beatles albums. But it was I think it was when <clears> Ryan Giggs started doing it. There was a fad. He managed well, obviously very successful career. Prolonged it into his played up to the age of 40 is that is that right yeah, did, and he yeah. attributes that to uh, that to doing yoga and i think that that's for me that that, that sort of switched on the ball say so, uh, yoga might be something worth pursuing i haven't done it but uh, that, that, that sounds that sounds good craig um, no sorry i was just going to add to that um the whole yoga sort of hippie sort of mindset of it you get the same from a uh, sort of meditation and stuff like that and i've looked into it more as it's became sort of more mainstream and I don't think there is anything wrong with that I think it is sort of trying to move away from that mindset because I am um, meditation I've not done it I'm not claiming I have but I was reading into it and I do think there is sort of there are a lot in it of just being able to sort of control your thoughts uh, being learning how to sort of get to sleep at mm. night being able to push those thoughts away and it becomes a lot more of a sort of mainstream thing that everyone can understand. You don't have to have all the language behind it that sort of maybe puts people off. Mm. And you can put it in much more simplistic terms like what uh, Craig's doing with, with yoga there. And I think it is something that is now becoming so mainstream that maybe it's something we should all be, we should all be taking part in, maybe. But I don't do things that are healthy for me. So regardless of reading that, um, I probably won't. Tony, what's the most unhealthy day you think you've ever had in your life? The one day you can look back on and thought, like, fucking hell, that was just, like, that was just completely out of order. Um, well, depending on if you want to look at it from a food factor or a party factor would be the... Can we get two. Give us, give us one <laughs> each. Um, well, party factor, I have in my life partaken in sort of benders if you like that have lasted in my very youngest days I remember once I met Craig Fowler um, after he got back from Ibiza and my good friend Lee and I'd been partying for about this is when I was about 22 21 and I'd been at a derby but there'd been a two, full two day party before that that had never never ended <laughs> uh, and then Fowler found me outside a chip shop up the bridges with cheese running down my face and I hadn't seen uh, Fowler or Lee who are obviously two of my closest friends at school and I barely I was just like oh hi it's nice to see you as I ate some chips and cheese and the cheese fell through my face food wise I mean that's quite well, that's, that's not food wise well, no, no, that was more like the, the staying awake and partying. And there, there's a lot inferred by that uh, that I'm not really going to go too much into on a podcast. He but. does, he, yeah, listen, he, he's done the odd line. He's, <laughs> it's all fine, mate. It's all fine. We, don't, we know what you mean. We know what you mean. <laughs> um, food wise, um, oh, God, I don't know. There's been periods uh, as a student where maybe you had like 
basically just eight takeaways, sort of three days on the bounce, where it was just basically that was all you were eating because really just incapable of looking after yourself. And then uh, Mandy was then my girlfriend came along and sort of saved me from from these from these sort of lifestyles, and she tries to control it to a point, and she does her best, but it can't always be saved. No, I think back to my, my days as a student staying in St. George's Cross. I used to have four of them a day, four of them a day. It was like a, a roll with square sausage, bacon, egg, and a tatty scone in it. Four a day. Like you'd have two for breakfast and two for dinner. And you did nothing to your body. You know, you could just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. But now you like you, you stay in the same room as a crisp and you put on four pounds. <laughs> Fucking bullshit. Bullshit. Anyway, but enough about my body problems. Uh, Robert Borthwick, uh, what have you been enjoying? So, obviously, um, I like to keep things current. Uh, I'm, I'm a very sort of uh, current affairs kind of guy. So, what I've been enjoying is uh, 1989 sitcom Blackadder Goes Forth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, uh, me, me and my flatmate have, have been sort of been playing loads of FIFA and we watched the entire Fast <laughs> um, uh, franchise, every single film. Uh, and, and the new thing that we've, we've gone back to now is Blackadder Goes Forth. I, I think it, it's, it's such a nostalgia hit for me because it, it's one of the first comedies that I think I can remember watching with my parents. Um, but also, it, it's easy to forget quite how good it is. Um, so obviously it's the, it's the Blackadder series that's set in 1917, World War I uh, and the, the gang are about to go over the top and it's basically oh, yeah. just uh, it's, it's six episodes of uh, Rowan Atkinson, Blackadder um, trying to get out of it and, and try to you know, take his, uh, his two trench buddies uh, well, not, not his buddies certainly but Hugh Laurie and uh, Tony Robinson's characters it's, it's, um, I've, you know, I've never seen Blackadder uh, but I do know that, that I think that's a, that's a very famous scene and it's uh, incredibly well done so Hugh Laurie says something that he, he's, he's terrified yeah, yeah it's, it's, so basically I mean all the way throughout it, it's only six episodes and, and the last episode obviously is incredibly poignant when, when they do go over the top and then uh, it fades to a field of poppies um, at the end. It, it's an incredibly strong ending um, to what is a comedy show but I think it's, it's the episodes leading up to that um, whereby the comedy quite a lot of the time comes from them just reiterating what the reality was. And, and, you know, it's saying that, so, you know, there's a scene when Stephen Fry, um, who plays General Melchard, um, they, sort of, they go and see him and he's like, right, so the, the plan is to uh, step out of the trenches and walk very slowly towards uh, German sniper and machine gun fire and get slaughtered. And he's like, yep, yeah, that's what we've done 17 times before. That's what we'll do again. They won't be expecting it. <laughs> and, and it, it and, and, you know, it's that, it's that comedy and it's, it's the, the delivery of it. I mean, Rowan Atkinson's delivery um, of the, the jokes in the, the series is phenomenal. But it, it's still on the back of your mind. You're like, they are talking about real life. That's what, that's what these, you know, that's what the soldiers went through at that time. Um, and, and that's where a lot of the, the sort of the laughs come from is actually the, the sort of discomfort that you find when you're like, right, so this is what actually happened. I, I think... Uh, one of my favourite ongoing gags throughout the whole thing is Tim McInerney's character is called uh, Darling. And it's just, again, it's just the delivery of that, oh, hello, darling. And it's, you know, it's, I think the only time I've ever seen a name comedy quite like it is uh, George Michael and the rest of development. It's just, it's always funny whenever someone says it. It doesn't have to be a gag. But no, watching it back, you know, it's... It is, it is a nostalgia hit, but also it, it stood the test of time really well. And, um, you know, you can go back and, and just 
watch it and enjoy it. Six 30-minute episodes, it's not going to take up a huge amount of your time, but it, I just I just so recommend it. it it's, it's, it's well acted. As I say, Rowan Atkinson is just razor sharp all the way through it. Um, Stephen Fry, I mean, watching it, Stephen Fry's like 31 when this was filmed as well, and he's playing a, a sort of older gentleman. It's, yeah, it's just a, a total throwback. I mean, it came out before I was born. Um, and it's, it's as I was growing up, obviously, my, my parents were obviously partial to it, and that, that's where I first uh, first saw it. And I, I'm, I'm a total, I'm a bit of a history geek when it comes to World War stuff as well. It, it sort of adds a, a different comedy slant to, to actually being quite informative um, at a young age as well, when it, it was sort of talking about the, the real issues. Uh, what well, that's completely part of the fan trait to yeah. remember World War One. Like everyone was thinking that at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think most of the Hearts players who were involved with uh, that was the year before. They were all gone by then. But um, no, it, it's it is an excellent series. Um, I, I recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it. I, I know a lot of people have, and, and like you say, Craig Telfer, the the final episode, the final scene is is really you know it's pitch perfect. Not Stephen Fry's finest sitcom work, though. I don't know if you've heard of a sitcom called Bedeal Syndrome, but uh, Stephen Fry is in every episode of Bedeal Syndrome. He plays, he's, he, you don't see him, you don't see his face, but you hear his voice. He is uh, David Bedeal's therapist, who appears <clears> at the start and the end of each episode. Very funny. But my, my uh, the thing I've enjoyed during lockdown, it isn't Bedeal Syndrome, although I do watch it very regularly for some reason. But <laughs> I, I, I watched a lot of movies this week, and kind of like yourself, Robert, I've like I've, I must have watched about 30 movies, not as many as that, but, but, but probably 20 movies this week. I, I love watching movies when I'm, when I'm working from home now. But the, the best one is a movie that I watched, and it's the first time I've seen it in a couple of years. It is Boogie Nights by Paul Thomas Anderson from 1997. And I loved it. I remember seeing it as a teenager. And I think it's a teenager because it's about folk having sex. That it's that that's quite that's that hooks you in the fact you get to see Heather Graham and, and Julianne Moore you get to see them, them them having sex in it, but when you get older and you can appreciate it, it's it's not a sexy film in the slightest. It's all these damaged people who have all sort of come together to to work in the the porn industry in the the late seventies and into the eighties, and it is just a a brilliant 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 movie. It's. Paul Thomas Anderson's second movie is probably his probably his most straightforward piece of work. Probably his most is least ambiguous, um, and it follows uh, Mark Wahlberg plays Eddie Adams, who becomes porn star Dirk Diggler. Jack Horner, played by Burt Reynolds, takes him under his wing, and it's his rise to the top of the industry, and then subsequent fall into the eighties as he spirals into drug addiction and, and prostitution, and it is just. I could not recommend this movie highly enough. I think it, I imagine most people have seen it because it's a, a bit of a classic movie, but I think it's absolutely fantastic. I actually have not seen that film. Uh, I have heard of heard about it, but I've never actually seen it. There I've just go. seen bits. I think bits of it rather than I've actually sat and watched it right through. No, it's, it's you're, you're zero for three here, Craig. Wow, wow, that's I thought I thought uh, I thought you would would all at least at least one or two of you might might have seen it. It's, it's very like I watched Goodfellas the next day. And you can see a lot of the stuff in Goodfellas, the same like uh, camera tricks and, and the way that, that certain shots are, are put together. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has borrowed a lot of stuff from Scorsese, but it, it's brilliant. It's funny. It's tragic. Music's brilliant in it. And there's one scene in particular towards the end of the movie where Dirk Diggler, his friend John C. Reilly's in it. John C. Reilly was playing uh, like straight roles at this time before he 
sort of pivoted to out and out comedy. But there's a scene where him and this other guy, they're, they're off their face in cocaine <clears throat> and amphetamines. They've not been sleeping. They decide to rob a local drug dealer. And his guy's Raha Jackson, played by Alfred Molina, who's absolutely off his face in cocaine as well. And they're listening to Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield. Well, a Chinese boy is letting off firecrackers in the background. So the guys are toys here, sort of banging noises. And it's just really, really unsettling. Um, but it's so good. And I, I would, I don't, again, don't want to turn this into a movie review because we're going to talk about a very good movie later on. But I would highly, highly recommend Boogie Nights. I've loved it. It was great watching back. I, I, I thoroughly encourage watching it. Tony, what have you uh, been enjoying other than uh, sleeping in your own filth? Oh, okay. Uh, oh, Robert, you've put a top on now, which is now, now you've just twist. Now you've just twisted, and now Craig has to feel uh, awkward. And I'm not awkward, no solidarity mate. Now. Nah, don't worry about me. <laughs> 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 um, I oh, this might be quite a boring one. As I say, I nearly um, nearly done the Sopranos last week, as I said, because I was struggling, uh, and instead I went for righteous gemstones. And now, because this is what I have been watching, and I can only bring that to the table. Uh, is uh, Better Call Saul, which is an American show which is derived from uh, the sort of really famous and popular Breaking Bad. It is the exact same writers in Vince Gilligan and Peter Gold, and it's done in really quite a similar way. It's about the sort of change in style from or Bob Aldenkirk, who was Saul Goodman, in the Breaking Bad series, and it is basically his journey from a uh, lawyer, Jimmy McGill, into the sort of character that we knew and loved in the Breaking Bad series. Uh, it is superb, really. Uh, it's really quite simple. It's done quite similarly to Breaking Bad in terms of it is quite slow at points, which I always thought was a really important part of Breaking Bad for you to buy the sort of transformation of the character. You really had to feel that you knew everything around them. You had to un- understand the situation properly and it couldn't be done at pace if you wanted everyone to buy into it. And this is done very similarly. I've watched it all uh, up until I think it's at season five now. And I've only just finally, I don't want to give too much away, but you only sort of late in the se- in that It's only in that season where you really start to see um, Jerry McGill become um, Saul Goodman. But it's sort of split into two, the whole series. As I said, the start of it is very much um, relatively realistic. It's more about his relationship with his brother, who's a really, uh, who's a sort of really successful lawyer. And it's him trying to live up to that and wanting to have the same sort of lifestyle as him. But then uh, what happens after that is then it starts to bring in the sort of Breaking Bad universe. And I don't want to make it as simple as sort of Easter eggs, which I think is what a lot of scares a lot of people is they think that the, the sort of beauty of the show is only in those Easter eggs that you can pick up as you go. But it is nothing like that at all. All these sort of characters that you know and characters that you hear about in the Breaking Bad series are all given real depth and then sort of the understanding of how the area and the situations all arise from that uh, is, is just absolutely it's superb to really think that someone has been able to do that sort of so give that whole world so much meaning for so many different characters and bring it all together uh, it is really quite something it's got that similar sort of cinematography that you get in Breaking Bad which is sort of really beautiful and sort of the strangest thing if you like is the character that steals the show if you like is Rhea Seahorn who plays uh, Kim Wexler 
uh, who is also a lawyer and is Saul Goodman's sort of love interest uh, as he pushes through the show. And she is absolutely brilliant. And she has doesn't have, she isn't actually in Breaking Bad. Um, so it's sort of like a character out with the universe that you only meet is actually the one I would argue that sort of steals the show as things go oh, on. Uh, I could... It got, it got a heat of him. I've not watched I watched all of Breaking Bad and I thought Breaking Bad w- was fantastic. I thought that, remember that it was, Breaking Bad for a while was billed as the, the greatest TV show of all time. Mm-hmm. I don't quite think, I was, Sopranos, I think is still in that top tier. The Wire mm-hmm. slightly below it. Wire kind of lets itself down with that sort of final series. Mm-hmm. But then, then there's that next stratosphere and that's where Breaking Bad sits. I, and I loved it and I always meant to get round to watching Better Call Saul because, as you say, it's fantastically well written. I thought Saul Goodman was a great character in mm-hmm. uh, Breaking Bad. Bob Odenkirk, uh, played, Bob Odenkirk yeah, played, played, yeah, played it very well. But I never got round to doing it, Tony. But that's perhaps uh, your, your words may have just... Uh, it's swung it round. It's quite cleverly done as well with Vince Gilligan. I was reading into why <clears throat> that he had this idea quite early on. It wasn't something that he'd done new. And the big reason for that is that he had a lot of story to tell, but he was worried because he was one of the original writers of The X-Files, mm-hmm. which is obviously a show that I imagine most of us is, uh, have at least seen episodes from. And he believed that that went on for too long and it lost its quality, which I think most people would agree with if they watched The X-Files like that. Uh, and he didn't want, that's why he wanted to keep it as sort of six seasons for Breaking Bad. And then he wanted to tell another story about another character by going back and doing that again because he felt he'd had his fingers burnt and he tried to learn from his mistakes of the past of doing uh, The X-Files. But uh, yeah, I would thoroughly recommend it and you'll get all the pops that you want for the Breaking Bad characters. But as I said, they aren't just there to make you, it isn't just like, oh, that, that's them there, that's them there. They are all there for a reason. And learning about sort of Gus Fring and how, how the, the drug trade happens. And it gives you all that information of how they all end up there with the Salamancas and the hatred between the two. Uh, and it just becomes, um, I, I really couldn't recommend it enough. So, I mean, see, I, I've never watched it. And, and obviously, like Telfer, absolutely love Breaking Bad. Um, I, I think I don't know if it's the rate at which Better Call Saul came out. I, I felt like I was too far behind already. Do you know what I mean? It's weird, but it's always been in my mind to watch it. But the the character, uh, Bob Odenkirk's character, does it start with him being a, a total bastard of a lawyer, or does he grow into that as Saul? No, it's totally it's totally grown into that because he his name's Jimmy McGill. Yeah. That's his sort of like original name. And as I said, he's he's got a relationship with his brother. His brother works in a really really sort of top law firm. And Joe McGill wants to be like that as well. So he's trying to learn. He wants to be a good guy. But don't get me wrong, he is sort of like a con man. Um, he sort of, but it's something that he's, the, moralist, the morals of that is something he fights in the early days. And without giving too much, well, you're not giving anything away. People know who Saul Goodman becomes. And over the, the series, he realizes that actually maybe he's better being the con man. Uh, yeah. And sort of like he can bring a lot more being a sort of full-blown criminal lawyer rather than a lawyer who maybe looks out for real people who need genuine support. It's better to actually look out for the monies than looking after the criminals. His style uh, would actually support that and sort of different things happen to him that make him sort of go, fuck it, I'm going out on my own and I'm going to be sort of Saul Goodman. I'm going to change my name and become that character. And as I said, the length of time, the slowness of it all helps you buy into it. And if you like Breaking Bad, there is absolutely no way you won't enjoy this. This is just as good. Just as good. There's, there's no, I, I can't differentiate the, the two series. 
uh, if I'm being honest, in terms of quality. Praise indeed, Tony. Praise indeed. Now, that's the good things we've enjoyed. That's, uh, that's Saul Goodman, <laughs> as they, uh, they say. That's what his name is. It's a pun, isn't it? Unlike It's Saul Goodman. That's what yeah, yeah. Is, isn't it? And um, they, we give you a little bit of the drips of him saying that as time goes on and then yeah. it's sort of realisation. Yeah. Well, normally we do, we move on to talk about things that, that we don't like, things that have really uh, ground our gears, things that have really twist, things that have really twist their lemons. But we're not going to do that this time. We're going to talk about things that we're a little bit more ambivalent about, things that we're perhaps a little bit more on the fence about. It's very easy to get annoyed, but it's a bit more difficult to... I just not give a shit. Borthwick, <laughs> what are you on the fence about? It's definitely easier to find things that you just don't like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so on the fence, I, I'm, I had a good think about this and I feel that this is actually perfect because I, I know that my opinion will not be the same for a lot of different people, but full reruns of classic football matches, I'm not sure I'm into that. I don't know. So uh, on ITV and BBC, I believe, they're doing like a, this summer, they're playing loads of old uh, Euros games, like Euro 96 and all that kind of stuff. And I just have no interest in watching full games that have already happened, that I already know what happens. And I think that the time would be better spent making a 90-minute, even just voiceover documentary, taking a lot of different games into it, looking at highlights and going through that tournament I'd find that a lot more fun than sitting down for 90 minutes knowing that Scotland are about to lose 2-1 to England and knowing when those goals come. So I, like, I think, obviously, it's relevant to the people who it matters to, right? So for, like, uh, the SFA played the 1998 Scottish Cup final, uh, full rerun on their YouTube channel. I watched that because it had been a long time since I watched it and I enjoyed it. And I was like, Is that hey. the Hearts Rangers game at Celtic Park? That's right, yeah. Oh, it's rubbish. I watched it as well. It's so boring. But if you're a Hearts fan, because you know that yeah. there's such points throughout the game to look forward to. But I think with the... Like I say, I've been more triggered by the, the old Euros games uh, that are getting played because, you know, not all of them are classics, which means that... And I completely sympathise with uh, ITV, BBC needing to fill up uh, spaces on the schedule because they, they cannot record new TV shows just now but it's just not for me it's not something that I, that I will watch not something I would watch I'm, I'm very much for especially games like that I'm more of a highlights guy so I think that if it was turned into you know just even the 90 minutes turn it into a 90 minute documentary or something um, about even just that group stage and then you can the day after you can go through the knockout stages and stuff like that that for me would be better more digestible content than what they're doing just now. But I, I don't know about playing full matches again because we've all watched football. There's massive spells and games where you just <laughs> end up looking at your phone and just because sort of, you know that nothing's coming. You're, you're watching something that's already happened. You've already seen it. Um, and yeah, that, that's, that's my two cents on the matter. So, uh, so, you guys agree or disagree? So I'm a kind of massive geek on this type of stuff, but I, I kind of agree with you in the sense that the football part I can take a leave. The reason that I would watch something like that is like the cultural aspect, like mm, yeah. understanding how how people covered football back then, like in old days, how commentary was different, maybe even how like aspects of the game were different. Like it's funny seeing the fourth official holding up a plastic board instead of a like just these types of things. But 
Um, I don't know if this is what, what kind of made you think of it, but the other night I was saying I watched, um, I'd been recording the Euro 96 stuff and I watched the opening, before the opening game, England-Switzerland. And in the pre-match show, they have Alec Ferguson and Kevin Keegan like being interviewed together. And this was obviously like literally months after the, or a month after the I Would Love It stuff. Mm. But they're all like saying, oh, we've kissed and made up. And it's like, actually, it seems quite genuine. And they're, they're standing, you know, they're next to each other actually being asked about it. And then Ferguson um, announces that he's, or announces that they, they bring in that Ferguson's just had two twin grandchildren. And then there's actually like a nice sense of, sense of humanity about it. Oh, and Kevin Keegan seems absolutely delighted for him. And, and I think it's funny, like bits like that. So I really like the cultural aspect of it. But I completely agree with you that I don't want to actually watch, and I won't watch 90 minutes of England v Switzerland beyond it. Maybe on in the background while I'm working or something. But yeah. when the studio bits come on, I'm like fixed in on those because I'm really interested in how they how they cover it and stuff. Even just the graphics, the graphics are so so old compared to what you would see now. Um, that I, I find these things fascinating, which I realise yeah makes me sound like a, a massive geek, but I don't think that surprises anyone. <laughs> but that's that's where I kind of get on these. Okay, yeah, there are classic games I'd like to watch. So um, I've, I've done it before, and and, and I've watched like um, I remember watching. Red Star Belgrade, the Champions League final, or the European Cup final that they won, but that was like I'm inter- I was interested in, you know, how different football was and how would a team like that play. I've known lots of the players from later on, and so things like that I might watch as kind of a football geek. But yeah, England v Switzerland during '96, not a classic game. Nobody gives a fuck. I'm not bothered about the football, but I like what's round about it. I think it's one of yeah. those things. It's like I, I, I. I I agree to an extent. I, I I don't mind them at all. Actually, I think it's people people uh, want to to watch um, like like football matches. And if there's if there's one country who wants to lionise their past glories, it's certainly England. So that's probably why they're, they're so keen to to showcase these games. But I do I, I find do find them fascinating. They're not going to be for everyone. And I think Robert, you're absolutely right. Going back to the, the talk about the Scottish Cup final from 1998, that they're. I enjoy them, but it's, it's the sort of thing you you only enjoy if it's particularly relevant to to, to you. It's like like the England Switzerland with no interest in watching it. But if I could, I would love to be able to see uh, East Fife two Stenhouse Muir three from two thousand and five, where David Templeton make his made his debut. Never get a chance to see that again, but that game's ingrained in my head. I'd love to get a chance to see it again, but I I. I I never will. I don't know what point I was making there. Um, you get the I general idea. Bring up David Templeton's debut and, and fair play to you. Um, you know, it's, it's a big time in your life. I, I think Craig Anderson, what you were saying about the the sort of the cultural side of it, um, I I totally agree. I, and I think that when I'm saying like turn it into a, a 90 minute documentary or something, that's the sort of stuff that you'd want to see. Um, you know, the the cutaways to the crowd, the fucking horrendous challenges that only got yellow cards. Stuff like that, you know, it's it's football of a different time, but I think the the ninety minutes for me is just something that. And and they'll have the they'll have interviews and stuff from that time. They wouldn't have to make a sort of brand new documentary. Totally. Um, they they would have sort of footage of off the pitch stuff that they could splice together and make a sort of pretty good documentary. And I'm with you. That's the kind of thing I would watch. I would watch a Euro '96, even like three 90 minute Euro '96 documentaries about the whole tournament. But yeah, sitting watching a game. Even if it's not England, just random teams playing during that period. I mean, I've moved on, man. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's other things to see. I am on the fence about an American actor called Will Ferrell. 
<laughs> I don't know what I find. Yeah, I can understand this. I can understand this right away. As mentioned at the start, I've, I've watched a lot of movies over the past week, and three of the movies that I watched were Blades of Glory, Get Hard, and The House. And they were all rubbish. Blades of Glory is not rubbish. Blades of Glory is rubbish, man. I am with Tony Anderson on this. Okay, well, well, well it's not rubbish. We'll agree to that. I'll get into it. No, it's not funny. He's, he's annoying in it. Um, he's annoying in it. Uh, all, all three of these movies are effectively vehicles for, for Will Ferrell. And, and watching them, I, I don't think I laughed once at them. There's quite a nice line in Blades of Glory where he says, nobody knows what it means, but it's provocative. And I thought, ah, that's quite funny. That's sort of kind of like the, the sex panther 60% of the time. It works every time. That sort of the same sort of uh, area is that uh, and it's then uh, stolen it's stolen for um, the Jay-Z and Kanye West track isn't it they sample that exact um, line don't they in one of their tracks did they Paris. yeah no dun 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 they have the line midway through it interestingly enough there you go um, anyway, m- moving back from, from rap music, uh, <laughs> Will Ferrell do some quality work in the past. I mean, old school, for instance, old school's a pretty mediocre movie, but Frank the Tank's the best thing in it. He's, he's, he's very funny. He's Wedding Crashers. Wedding Crashers is actually a, a pretty crap movie, but Chaz, the funeral crasher, he plays that. He's very good in it. Uh, Anchorman is, is quite good in parts, and, and I really, really, really love Step Brothers, and I'd say Step Brothers is one of the funniest movies I think I've ever seen. But a lot of the time, he seems to play the same character in everything I've seen him in, where he's sort of loud, obnoxious, a bit dim-witted, somehow gets himself into these daft schemes and scrapes that he doesn't really have any agency over. Like, sort of, these things seem to happen to him. Hmm. He's just along for the ride. And particularly in The House and Blades of Glory, he was acting alongside Amy Poehler, who I'm assured has done good stuff in the past. I've never seen her in anything that I've actually enjoyed. She's an arrested development. I didn't find her character, she's only in it for a couple of episodes, I didn't find her character particularly interesting. Um, but that, that's, I was kind of on the fence about Will Ferrell. It's, I think there might have been a period, maybe about like 10 years ago, where if you saw his name attached to something, it was sort of like must-see. But now, particularly after the house, I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's like him and Amy Poehler. Uh, is that the one where it's like they're, they create a casino? Yeah, yeah. yeah that is absolutely woeful. Yeah, <laughs> it's really bad. It's really, really bad. And long, long, long periods don't make any sense. There's, there's they, they jump from bit to bit, and it's it's just it's just not really funny. And I tried to throw that on as something like sort of just uh, make me sort of smile, please at points. I didn't. I don't. I don't. I, I, in fact, that I thought was woeful. I didn't have any expectations for it. I was actually just wanting to pass the time and watch something uh, with Mandy and, and even both of us. I was like, that was a waste of time, even though there was time that was there to be wasted, which Aye. is a difficult thing to achieve. He seems to be an autopilot in a lot of the, the, the stuff that, that I, th- I think he's in. And I think that's always a dangerous, a, a dangerous bit for a comedian to get into. For instance, Adam Sandler, um, who's had made some horrendous movies, absolutely horrendous movies, particularly a lot of the stuff that he churns out from Happy Madison. There's occasionally get that flicker where he does something really good. For instance, he was, he was amazing in Punch Drunk Love. He's amazing in um, Uncut Gems, which is something we spoke about right right back at the start when we were recording these uh, these pop culture podcasts. And I don't know if, if Will Ferrell's got the capability to, to to raise himself out of his stupor. It just seems that everything I've seen him in, he does the he does the same thing. Sometimes it's very he good. He is doing straight roles. Sometimes he is doing good. straight roles. <clears throat> Sorry, Tony, say that again. But I can't remember the names of the film. I think. 
Sorry, I think he is doing some straight roles. I think right. he done sort of quite a romantic movie. I can't. I'm, this is really pointless to bring up because I can't remember any of the detail about it. But I'm sure he done something, and I'm sure I read that uh, he was quite critically acclaimed in it, which right. might be something that um, you're on the fenceness mm-hmm. and your mindset that might be worth uh, digging out and maybe so, I'll Jim, have Jim, a look. And well, Jim people Carey did that, Tony. Jim Carrey mm-hmm. when he played a couple of straight roles, he was amazing. But, he, the, the Truman Show. Is yeah, Eternal Sunshine of the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minds a really good film. Yeah, it's amazing in that. Um, so that worked really well. And then even like other sort of comedic roles for Jim Carrey, things like Cable Guy are really unsettling. They're not yeah. as simple as just this is a man that's funny. He plays sort of a really, really off the wall sort of dangerous man <laughs> in Cable Guy. So there was like that was a really perfect movie for Jim Carrey actually. When you think about Cable Guy, because it allowed for the humour and the ridiculousness that he's sort of famed for but at the same time gave him room to grow and, and sort of play a character that would sort of stay with you. And I think you're right. A lot of the Will Ferrell characters are throw away. They all sort of merge into one. I do buy into that. And I'm exactly the same as you, is that I, when I was a kid, uh, I think I was the same. I would rush to see a Will Ferrell movie. If you were sitting with the lads uh, on a Friday night when you're young, you would chuck on a Will Ferrell movie and you would all enjoy it. But I think the older you get, you sort of, you've seen this shtick before. Yeah. Uh, don't really buy it as much. It's not as, it's not as easy to get you. No, I told, I, I told Anchorman, Anchorman was kind of the, the making and the demolition of the modern day Will Ferrell because... I well that was made. He's, he's been interviewed about that, like, obviously, loads of times. And everyone in the making of that film thought it was fucking garbage. And then it came out and it became this massive thing. And it became... A cult classic, yeah. A cult classic, yeah. So many people involved in that film were like, once they'd wrapped and, and they were sort of doing their, their media tour, they were like, fuck it, I don't want anyone to see this film. Like, I, I just don't think this is good. But then thereafter, Will Ferrell was cast in every single comedy ever made. Mm-hmm. It was just absolutely everywhere. Like Talladega Nights and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, but Can I think, it, yeah, it, it was only more recently um, when he was in Other Guys which I absolutely adore. I think that's a great film. Uh, the other guys with Mark Wahlberg. And that's when I was like, right, okay, that, that's, that's a lot more like it from Will Ferrell. He's not just playing the same guy, which is this obnoxious prick uh, all the time. He's, he's actually playing this sort of quite nerdy uh, police officer and all that kind of stuff. And, and he plays up to it really well and it, it leans into his kind of comedy really well. So I think like being on the fence about Will Ferrell is absolutely spot on because he's done so much shite, but at the same time, some of the films that he's been in are the most quoted and most quotable films that you can think of since like the year 2000. So yeah, I think it's a fair cop. Are they, are they bringing out a, a sequel to Step Brothers? I've always seen that mooted, just that you were saying that that's one of your favourites, Craig. I'm sure I've always... It probably, there's probably a sequel there because there's money to be made from it, but oh. I, I don't think it needs it. You know, the Step Brothers told the story. Well, there's no plot, is there? Why would you bother? It was more just aye, a vehicle to do them have fun together. Aye, Step, Step Brothers told the story. It looked like it was great fun to, to make. I remember reading, yeah. I don't know if this is true or not, but the guy, is it um, Adam McKay? What's the name of it, who plays Derek, his, uh, his brother? But they, they, because of his improvs, when they finished up filming, they had more film from filming Step Brothers because of his improvs than they did throughout the whole of Apocalypse Now. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, or if that's apocryphal. That is that 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 sounds shite. Considering you decamped to like a, a jungle in the Philippines for months to 
shoot a movie compared to something that looks like it was mostly filmed on a soundstage. But uh, <laughs> realize, if it is true, it is very interesting. Uh, Craig Anderson, it's Adam Scott. Oh, Adam, Adam Scott. Scott, beg your pardon. It's, uh, yeah. Adam Mackay must be the director. Mackay's he is the director, yeah. Yeah, Adam Mackay's Adam director. Scott. Adam Scott is funny and it is, is the brother like controlling his whole family. Aye, there's a bit it's like when he's talking about bonita fish, you know? Don't get mad at uh, Dale for ruining the story and possibly the evening. You know? <laughs> <laughs> really funny. Uh, Craig Anderson, what are you on the fence about? I apologise in advance because my internet's been crap, so if uh, if I start breaking up, I'll apologise to the listener, I'll apologise to the three of you, but I'm going to go back to what Rob did and, and focus on sport, and it's uh, the National Football League, the NFL. As a sport, I generally quite enjoy it, so I, I've gone through spells of kind of watching, you know, staying up late and watching whole seasons of it, um, you know, properly putting it on putting it on the series link and watching it the next morning when I got up and, you know, most of the season, but like the more I think about it, because like, I kind of cultural thing I, I think it potentially the kind of the most racist sport um that exists you know you've got all the kind of background to it you know the stuff with with Colin Kaepernick obviously being the kind of obvious part of that and, and the 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 way that that kind of culture of you know um banning players from from kneeling and and all the kind of punishment that went with that and obviously what happened with Kaepernick kind of puts me off the sport Quite a lot. I'm like, I don't know if I want to watch this. I don't know if I want to contribute to this. And you've for got me, so just quickly for me, if if you watch the NFL and realise there's a team called the Washington Redskins, that, that was it. Yeah, by that, then you know that that's kind of yeah, yeah. That that was yeah, that was something I was going to say as well. And, and the fact that they they don't seem to know, or they don't seem to realise that there's a, that's a problem or that's problematic, and they seem to be kind of powering on, even though like they're being condemned, kind of broadly across the country um for that um and and you know them putting out a statement of support against like racism and stuff like that the other day it's like it, it, it rings completely hollow um and and then you've got this sense it's almost got you get this feeling when you, when you think about it like that it's like the kind of gladiator shows from rome where they're basically just paying black guys to run into each other really fast and like give each give themselves concussion and lead themselves to early death all that kind of stuff um, kind of is the, the downside of it for me and, and it's what kind of puts me off and I've actually kind of faded away from watching it as much recently. Um, and then you've obviously got the kind of glorification of army and all the kind of stuff that, that surrounds that and the fact that the US Army, I think um, I think it was found, paid loads of money to the NFL to kind of make sure they did all these armed forces days or whatever they call them there. And, and it's trying to balance that off because against... A sport which I quite like. I like I like the um, the way it plays out. I like the kind of operation of it. I like. I think it's quite a creative sport. I think there's a lot of um, you know like, when you think of all the plays and how they how they all run. And there's a lot of creativity. You know when they, they do the fake plays and some of them you think you know that's so much effort and time has gone into kind of constructing that. And so I find myself very conflicted in general when I think about the sport. Um, and and I don't know what. The right thing yeah. to do. <laughs> uh, there's, there's something if you follow on from that, they've also got uh, the sort of the way that they have the female version of the NFL, the the women's game. Um, that's like totally odious way of doing it. They 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 dress the girls up in the really low cut stuff. So like, oh, they've got all the cleavage going and really really high hot pants and stuff. I saw it in the past, and I was reading into that more. It's 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 really terrible. They don't give them. They don't pay them enough, and they don't have any insurance for them. So if 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 an athlete gets injured, 
um, they have to pay for that completely for themselves, even though it's like a professional sport and it's being played on the telly. Um, it's basically just for people to ogle at, but they're still playing a really, really dangerous game. That's, that will, that's the same as professional wrestling, Tony. The, the wrestlers are independent contractors. Mm-hmm. So basically, if anything terrible happens to them, like they suffer like a, a torn bicep or, or something mm. horrendous like that, uh, the, the WWE doesn't have to pay for their medical insurance because these are they're, they're, they're tra- tasked as self-employed. That's they're, awful. They're, I, didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all, especially doing a thing like wrestling. That is absolutely outrageous. I, on top of that as well, because they're, they're, and they're termed as self-employed, so you think, well, if I'm self-employed, I can work as often as I want. <laughs> you work when you're told to work as well. So you'll be working like about 300 days a year as, yeah. you know, as, a, as a pro wrestler. But it just ties in. It's like I think American sport is quite in, in, insidious. I mean, like to use wrestling for an example as well, for a couple of years ago, they had an angle between Booker T and Triple H. They were both going for the world title. And Triple H, who was the, the heel in the whole thing, so, God, no, you can't be justified, but... He was telling Booker T, who's black, like, people like you don't belong here. Like, he called, like, dance for me, boy. He mm. called my towel boy as well. So this is, like, really, really unpleasant stuff. And the WWE, that, that anyone who is slightly, like, like, light, like dark-skinned uh, will play, like, uh, somebody from, like, the Middle East or, or India. Or yeah, yeah. They went for an angle with a character called Muhammad Hassan, who I'm sure was an American or, or a Canadian wrestler, and he was, like, a terrorist. And the angle had to be pulled in the wake of the 7-7 bombings. Fucking crazy. Crazy. And it's like, you know, something, it does tie at a certain point that, like, I, I mean, I don't watch it as much as I used to, but professional wrestling is something that, that I, you can watch and you can enjoy and you have some great moments. But when you think about all the other stuff that, that goes on outside it, and not, not just talking about racism, but, like, rampant sexism, the, the, the way that performers are treated, you're sort of like, oh, James, you feel, you feel guilty for, for enjoying it. And, and you probably should. You know, you probably should feel guilty. For, well, if you're not watching it, it's not there, ultimately. That's the truth yeah. that we all have to tell ourselves. That yeah. Don't support yeah. it. It's not as exist. I think we're seeing that. We've seen that a lot over the last, like, couple of weeks there, where I think a lot of people, I say, I say a lot of people, particularly, like, like, perhaps ourselves, Craig Anderson, I saw that letter you wrote to your M- MSP and, and shared it on Twitter. You know, that, that you think you're right to feel uncomfortable about... Uh, the way things are at the moment. That's part of part of being mature and coming to terms with things that have that have happened in the past. The NFL, just very quickly, um, on that is so muddy because you've got organizations, you've got a commissioner, you've got uh, fan bases and you've got money men and then you've got the players and there's just so many different things that will come together that make I truly, I'm a massive NFL fan, and that is a reprehensible sport. It is full of disgusting, money-loving bastards, um, and you know, systemic racism throughout it. Homophobia has been a massive issue in the NFL. There's so many problems with it, and and I still, when people ask me why do you like the NFL, I still can't really answer it. I just really like the sport, and I, I try and forget about the rest. But it's yeah. I can completely understand why you'd be on the fence about it, Craig, because it is, there's so many moral issues uh, within it that it, it does make it hard to bat for it because it's indefensible. Um, but then, you know, when it comes to September time, I'll be the first one getting my NFL game pass and stuff like that. But it's, you know, I'm, 
I'm I'm part of the problem. I'm I'm allowing it and and sort of you know letting it go on. But it's it's yeah. something we all do, Robert. I mean, that's something we all do. There's things, there's things that you even when you don't know about it, but you choose not to research, and then you hear murmurs about certain things that you like, and you just ignore it. And it's something that everyone is guilty for. Um, so I would never feel um, too bad uh, about it. It's like that's more of a it's more of a human thing that we that we all seem to do because we want to garner enjoyment from some places, and sometimes we like them in the, the wrong places. But what can you do? Yeah. Yeah, as it's, it's it's quite difficult to try and try and square those circles of of things that you know that that are morally or ethically questionable, but you you still enjoy them all the same. For instance, I I don't listen to Ryan Adams' music anymore after hearing that he's uh, not a very nice man. Uh, Tony, yourself, what are you ambivalent about? Um, this led on, I think you were talking about a couple of weeks ago, and again, it's the sport one, so I've kept this quite simple as well, and maybe. Maybe I've not done enough work, some would say, uh, for this one. But it was the, um, the sort of watching football behind closed doors. Um, it's because you're on the fence about it because I'm now thinking that it's going to happen in Scottish football. So that's what's really made me sit up and take notice of it. It does look like we're going to be getting virtual season tickets here and we're, and we're going to be watching the football. And it's great because I'm desperate to watch a Scottish football match. I'm very desperate to watch Hibs play. I was doing a podcast last night for the season review with Gary Cocker he was doing Dundee and I was doing Hibs and that was the real first time I got that feeling in my gut of how desperate I was to go and watch a game because um, other times we've done podcasts we've been doing pop culture we've done a lot of classic matches it's all been things in the past we've sort of I've not been involved in talking about current affairs in, in football doing the terrace recently so that was sort of the first time talking about those players got me really really excited but I've tried to watch the Bundesliga and it's just without the fan noise, I find it really hard to focus on it. It doesn't draw me in at all. I feel like I'm drifting in and out of the game. I, I, I worry about when we get to doing it in terms of, I don't want to call it a professional sense, but you know what I mean? For doing it podcast-wise, I think I might find it pretty hard to analyse a game because I don't know how well it's going to hold my attention. Uh, but I was sort of suddenly really thoroughly enjoying it. I enjoyed having a bet on a game. Uh, I enjoyed watching it, talking to friends about it online uh, and sort of listening to music alongside that. I found that was a better way of sort of watching the football than it was just with it with the empty stadium. But I also worry about the sort of wider context of it and sort of like people uh, in, in high places seeing how that football can be watched and enjoyed without fans there and what that's going to lead to. And sort of like how we become less and less important as time goes on. So it's something I'm really on the fence about. It's almost like I don't want anyone to see what football's like without fans because I worry about what that will what that will lead to in the future. I personally can't fucking wait for it to be in Scotland because you can hear all the shouts. <laughs> I, I, I personally don't speak German, uh, but I know that a lot of those shouts are maybe uh, quite choice uh, towards referee and towards opposition players. So I'm very much looking forward to that. But I, I totally agree that, that without crowd noise, it is difficult. What I've been doing is, is uh, having the, the games on, but uh, listening to music at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so I, basically, it means that I can, I can potter about and, and get on with my business, uh, but still watch a game of football and not have to listen to Owen Hargreaves um, on, a, on a time delay. Um, you know, sort of saying how good Kai Havertz is, because I, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> 
you know, uh, with, with, with Scottish football, when it comes back, I think it will be different because we will be more invested in it. Yeah. Which means that, which means that we will take more enjoyment from it as well. Um, I mean, I, I think the, the good uh, sort of test for this uh, will be when English football comes back in a couple of weeks. Um, because just naturally, I think a lot of us are closer to that because, you know, that, that's the way of it in the UK. You do tend to follow English football because it's on state television and stuff like that. So um, I think that'll be a big test for me to see what the enjoyment's going to be like when it does come to Scotland because I'm too far detached from the Bundesliga just now to really yeah. properly Care. about it. Do you know what I mean? No matter how much money we put in, English footballers. Oh, sorry, on you go, Craig. Sorry, on you go. No, I was just saying, English football. There's actually more players we know, even just from from Scotland. That you know, yeah. you 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 say oh, I'm watching John McGinn today, or I'm watching Ryan Fraser, or whoever it might be, um, rather than yeah, the Bundesliga, where it's like you're kind of trying to form attachments. Yeah, yeah. Even if you're not going to be watching John McGinn, the Hibernian Twitter account will, and they will <laughs> let you know all about it. <laughs> We'll move on to our movie review, where, of course, we've all watched a, a classic movie and we're going to uh, convene to talk about it. And the movie this week we are going to watch is the 2017 movie written and directed by Greta Gerwig. It is Lady Bird. Lady Bird is, a, I suppose, it's a, a coming-of-age story. It stars Savoir C. Renan as Christine <laughs> McPherson. And it focuses on her, in her, she's in her final year of high school, and it's about her looking to the future, looking to go into to college, and the difficult relationship that she has with her mother. Robert Borthwick, it was you that selected Lady Bird. Why did you go for this one? I... I didn't see it when it came out in the cinema and then I saw, obviously, it, it got nominated, multi-nominations uh, for uh, Academy Awards and all that kind of stuff. It, it just sort of, it was one that was always on my radar and then I saw it pop up on Netflix and I was like, right, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to watch it. And, you know, coming of age sort of teen dramas aren't really my genre of choice, uh, if I'm completely honest. But I saw it was, you know, it's a Greta Gerwig film. I was like, right, okay, so it might have that sort of like, slight kind of indie feel about it and I was like, right okay I'll, I'll go in and have a look and I just thought it was absolutely terrific uh, it tells it tells well told stories so you know uh, fraught relations between a mother and daughter uh, girl finds boys and and you know that, that kind finds of boys. <laughs> girl finds boys uh, and and vice versa and, and that sort of side of it is is told being told a million times um, you know Final year of high school, best friends, old friends, new friends, all that kind of, it's all stories that we've seen before. Yeah. The way it's done is just incredibly, even though I am not and have never been a teenage girl, it was all relatable at the same totally, time. Yeah. I, I think so much of it, I think, you know, the, the school element of it, um, I, I really like. I think it's, you know, uh, she's, she's got her best friend and then she's she obviously goes off with uh, the new friend at one stage to, to try and get closer to a boy and all that kind of stuff. And it's, that's all good. But for me, the relationship with her mum, played by Laurie Metcalf, uh, Laurie Metcalf, who, who was uh, nominated, might have won an Academy Award for that, actually, uh, now I think of it, um, is just amazing the way it goes through. And, and it's right from the first scene of the film. Yeah. Uh, when they're in the car and, you know, that they're listening to an audio book and they're both crying and they're both sort of like having a laugh. And then... Just like that, it goes and they're in an argument. Mm-hmm. And, and like that happens a few times throughout the film, and it's so clear that it's they love each other so much. But at the same time, it's it's a teenage daughter and a mum, and they're both big personalities. Of course, they're going to clash all the time. Um, I thought I, I thought it was I thought it's a really good movie. I thought it 
for the first half hour or so, I thought this is the best movie that we've watched, uh, that we've that we've reviewed. It reminded me a lot of Napoleon Dynamite in, in some mm-hmm. sort of ways. There was bits in it that I was laughing out loud, funny. The bit where at the start to get out of the argument with her mum, Lady Bird jumps out the car. Car, you know, did not see that coming. Absolutely hilarious, and it's played for laughs. You know, it's it's not played straight. It's played for laughs. The bit where she's running for student president and the nun is showing her campaign posters, and it's like these sort of pigeons. Like these, these pigeon heads, that, that really reminded me of Napoleon Diamond. And I, and I thought for the first half hour, it's, I thought it was brilliant. And I think that the comedy wasn't as pervasive throughout the, like the final two thirds of the movie. And it became, it was very sweet, very adorable, really, really enjoyed it. But it wasn't as funny as, as it went on. And that's what kind of maybe takes it down a notch for me. But I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought there was, there was so many good, good things about it. And I think my, my, my favorite thing, the message that I took away from it, it was just like, be yourself is the message I got from it. And mm-hmm. she gets in an argument with her mum. They're looking at prom dresses and she talks about like being the very best version of yourself that you can be. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a really great message. And at the end, you know, we'll, we'll come on to talk about it. But when she's moved to, she eventually moves to New York City to start life at, at, at college and she, she meets a guy at a party and she introduces herself as Christine rather Christine, than Ladybird yeah. is, is what she was. <clears throat> What she was going with, I thought that was that was really sweet, and you're absolutely 100 percent right in what you say. Is that it's, a, it's a, coming from the, the perspective of a teenage girl, and there's obviously as, as four guys, you're you're not going to relate to that. I related to so much of it. Yeah. I really, really related so much of it, and I could see myself a lot in Lady Bird. How she's got that sort of that pig-headed teenage idealism. She's a bit self-mysticizing. She's a bit gauche. That sort of desire to cast off your teenage years and sort of like start again this idea that you can be anything you want to be when you go to university when you kick on when you leave school you kick on to that next stage in your life but then fundamentally at the end of the day you are still you yeah. you're still you you, know, <laughs> yeah. you cannot shake off that you cannot shake off the stuff uh, from the past it doesn't work like that even though you're moving to the other side of the country thought it was an excellent movie really really enjoyed it I enjoyed oh, this oh, sorry on you go no, no, I, I was just going to say in, in terms of the, the, the sort of characters as well, you've got all the classic characters of a coming of age film. You've got the really nice dad. You've got the mum that, uh, that's, that's constantly in argument. You've got the edgy brother uh, with edgy girlfriend. You've got the nerdy best friend. You've got the, the jock um, sort of new best friend and all that kind of stuff. But all of them have a wee there twist. Were no jocks. There were no jocks in this movie. Everyone was a bit of a loser in this movie. I, I would say I would say that her uh, her new friends when she's trying to get with Timothy Chalamet um, are certainly. The, I wouldn't say that they are jocks. I would say that in this film they they, they portray they the play that. Yeah. Well, I thought this is this is one of the one of the things that was so realistic about it because I think you've got when you think of like American high school movies, you do think of your archetypes, you do think of the nerds. And, and you do think of the jocks and the, the emos. And there were, yeah, like our friend um, Julie is probably pl- plays that nerd, but there's a lot more to her than that. There's, there's a great scene towards the start of the movie when they're, they're like scoffing communal wafers. Yeah. Well, I, I'm having a laugh at The that. body of Christ. Eating the body of Christ. Just <laughs> <like> that. <laughs> binging, binging on the body of Christ. <laughs> and then the, the sort of the, the, the characters, the, the, the sort of the, the, the jocks, our friend, um, is it Jenna? Is that, is that yeah. her name? Jenna Walton? Yeah, Jenna Walton, yeah. She sort of plays, plays the, the sort of the... The, the high school the high school job but she's not a jock as well there's, there's a lot of vulnerability uh, around it and, and, and Timothy Shamley's character who's a fucking prick in, in this movie you know it's 
Like, what's one of the lines I wrote this down actually? I don't like money. I try to live by bartering alone. I just say, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, but, but that's the thing for me about the film in general is like, just all these characters are so well written. Yeah. Like, like totally. all, all of them, because as, as you said, there's lots of stereotypes, there's lots of cliches or, or homages, whatever you want to call them, to like the kind of bog standard films like this, you know, the, um, the ditching the ditching the friends and then coming back to the original one at the end. It's all been done so many times, but but the way that it's done here, the way it's written, the way the characters are put together. Because even yeah, you see um, Jenna, the the cool new friend or whatever if that was her name, but um, she there's that moment where they're in the, the pool and she kind of starts saying, you know, basically she doesn't want to leave Sacramento and she loves it there. And, and that's the moment where Ladybird kind of is like, oh wait this is not the type of person that's like the complete polar opposite of me. And, and she almost realises at that point that she's, um, she's made a bad decision as such because you see that character as just being the kind of, you know, person, she, she doesn't have any drive to kind of do anything in her life and she just wants to kind of stay, stay where she is. And it's kind of, I think all of those characters, um, there's just that aspect to them where you think it doesn't matter that you don't, you're, you're meant not to like them or you're meant to, you're meant to find them to be the anti-heroes as such, but oh, that's not the right phrase, but you know what I mean? Because of how well they're written, you still have sympathy for their positions all the time, and, and you can get yeah, that. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no one-dimensional characters in it, and I thought that was uh, that's uh, really incredible writing because there's characters that aren't in it for very long. But for some reason, they're all given. They're somehow they're all given depth with like broad strokes. I thought that was like that was sort of like the so uh, the incredible part of the writing that I've, I think you'd struggle to do. I've never seen someone be able to do it. Was like so like like the priest. Um, so he goes. He's got a diagnosis about something. Uh, yeah, and and, and, and it's our, it's Marion. It's uh, Ladybird's mum that is the nurse, and, and and she asks him, "Do you have a support network?" And he's like, no. And this is a guy who's like a really popular, popular priest. You know, he's, he's, he's quite like the life and soul of the party. And the same with the sister as well, when she doesn't get angry about the prank that was preyed on her. Mm-hmm. And like you learn, and the way she treats uh, Jenna, again, you only see one bit about her. We're talking about the, the sort of high skirts, but the body language tells you that this is something that has happened loads and loads of times. Uh, and I thought that was uh, like super, the subtlety of it all yeah. is re- like there, it's not heavy handed. I mean, that's something that you mentioned quite a lot, Craig, when we talk about when I listen to this podcast, when I'm not on it, is heavy handedness with music and heavy handedness in movies in general. And it really treats you really well. This movie yeah. is it, it's subtle, it, it, a lot of things are inferred. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a delight of a movie, to be yeah, honest. It's so, uh, you're absolutely, I think, think that was the sort of thing that, that I came away from. And the, the, the performances like uh, Saoirse Ryan, is, Saoirse Ronan, beg your pardon, is very, everyone's very good. She, she's particularly good in it. I think that that's the, as a 34 year old man, you can completely buy into uh, a 17 year old girl. But it was, it was the writing, you're absolutely, you can, how you can have these archetypes. Because archetypes are archetypes for a reason, but you can you can uh, infuse them with humanity so that they're mm-hmm. not just these like stock cat like they are stock characters, but they are they are there's the sort of shades of grey uh, w- within them. And there, the, 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 there isn't a villain in this really. That I, I thought that was quite interesting. I wouldn't say there's really a bad 
person. I mean, Kyle is a bit of an arsehole, but I still think he's sort of, he he is who he is. Uh, He doesn't ever really do anything that's unbelievably nasty. He's just a bit of an arsehole. I suppose he lies. He lies about his his virginity. Yeah, yeah. That was a big thing, big thing for Ladybird to have Mm. sort of like, quote unquote, given herself to him. And that's a huge, that's another that, big part of how this that, movie that works. That seems incredible as well, um, the, the sex scene, as, as it is, um, yeah. like for the realism <laughs> of it. Yeah. Like, because, you know, in so many of these long. films, it's like treated as some sort of, a, you know, amazing experience and everything, you know, so, and then for that, it's kind of just... Uh, it comes so after five done. seconds and she gets a nosebleed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's brilliant. The mum, you talk about villains, Tony, I thought that the, the mum was, was a bit of a villain. Obviously, she she does love her daughter. There's a bit where Ladybird asks her, "Do you like me?" and and the mum says, "Well, of course I love you." And she says, "No, do you like me?" And mum can't answer her. And I thought that that is quite interesting that she said early doors in the movie that that her mum was an abusive alcoholic, but she is abusive as well. It's a different kind of abusive. It's it's manipulative. You almost understand the mother uh, at the same time. Like the, the amount of pressures that are on her the whole time. Uh, and obviously Ladybird is quite a, she's quite a almost relatively selfish character as well. It's all about her future. It's all about getting out. It's but all about having... That's, that's the other thing that's like 17 year olds are, are supposed to be selfish. Yeah, but, 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 but when you, when you put that together with her mum, sort of being the, the sort of sole breadwinner in that environment, and it's sort of like the coming together of two generations where uh, obviously like, Ladybird has big ideas of what she wants to do. I don't want to use this term, but I'm struggling to think of other one. She's got maybe a bit more wokeness. She's, got, um, she's not there yet. She's ignorant to a lot of things, but I think all the characters are like that. It's really quite modern about it. Everyone wants to be better and everyone wants to have an understanding of issues that are going on in the world, but nobody's quite there yet. So they all make up sort of, there's, you're, doing, you're all doing bits and bobs but really you can always be found out to be a hypocrite. And I think there's a frustration in our, in our, in our mother at times, and our mother our mother's really funny in it. Yeah. Um, sort of like she has a lot of the good one-liners, but I sort of related to that. I mean, um, with the mother, not that my mother ever done anything like that or ever put me down or anything like that, but we had similar relationships where I felt that in my younger days, my mother probably wasn't as into me as like similar. Like there was a, always a love there, but due to my behavior that maybe that, I, I sort of really related to that bit. It sort of punched me into the gut because I had a similar, I probably should be hearing this on, on a podcast, but yeah, no, I, I, had a, I, had a, I had a similar, when I was about 21, I had a pretty similar sort of conversation with my mother and my mother was completely right. Look at that. And she was right to sort of question who I was and, and my behaviours at the time. Did she but, see uh, you just after Fowler and Leaf? Relatively, a bit deeper than that. But uh, it was, but yeah, it was similar to sort of like, you, there is a love. And like, the, I, I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it. And I think that's a lot, for a lot of people, that is probably true. Uh, and a lot of people don't say it is that, yes, you love your son, your daughter, but a lot of the time you could be completely different people with completely different uh, sort of mindsets. And like, actually, like, and if you weren't, if you weren't, uh, if you weren't son and daughter or yeah, um, and mum or dad, then you would, there would be no way that you would ever sort of like each other. I thought the music in it was brilliant as well. I, I, I looked up, it was made by John Bryan. Uh, John Bryan's a name I'm familiar with because he's done a lot of work with Paul Thomas Anderson in the past that we spoke about and his score for Punch Drunk Love, I don't know if you've, if you've ever listened to the score for Punch Drunk Love, but that score is 10 out of 10, world-class piece of music and sort of, it's incredible how, how much of a difference that music can make to a movie and I think oh. in Punch Drunk Love, John Bryan's score takes it up 
to a, a different level, but his, his score on this was excellent. It was all very light touches here, and it, it really augmented the bits. It's sort of like fantastical in parts, and I suppose that that, that kind of ties in what I'm trying to say here. Because it is quite quite fantastical, the movie. There are sort of like the fantasy elements of sort of like imagining yourself. I, I, like as Lady Bird does, she wants to get on the like the, the drama team. She wants to be the student president. She wants to uh, enter the the math uh, team, yeah, or the math mathletics, or whatever, even though she's crap at it. And I think that that those sort of levels of fantasy, the music in itself, it's all light touches, all nice little. Uh, woodwind instruments and stuff and acoustic guitars that really meshed well the other bit as well that I was going to say there was a great piece of dialogue it kind of ties back to what I said about about, uh, being yourself it's a bit where she's gone to New York uh, Lady Bird's gone to New York and she's at a party with someone she's absolutely smashed and it's when she introduces herself as Christine rather than Lady Bird and the guy she's with is going through a music collection and he's like, yeah, he's like, off, bad yeah. taste the music, they're all greatest hits. And she's like, what's wrong with that? They're the greatest. I just love that. It's that idea, just be yourself. Doesn't give a fuck. Don't give a fuck if you, if you want to, if you've got like a, I, I don't know, like a Bruce Springsteen's, like one of his like off cut, like the, the promise, uh, the promise or whatever it is. If you want to listen to Born in the USA, you know, you, you can listen to Born in the Go USA. Just, it's just it's, it's kind of we we throw back to what was your favorite Beatles album, Best of the Beatles. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's, you know, uh, but but no, I, I I thought that part of the end though is is kind of the poignant part of the film when when she introduces herself as Christine again, and and you kind of get that realization because it's certainly true from my life that you spend just kind of school time like building up an identity of yourself, and then you go to like uni and nobody gives a fuck about that identity, so yeah. you're basically starting again. Um, and, and that was fine for me but it's just very um, you know it, it, it kind of shows how kind of throwaway some stuff is but like the, 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 the kind of outward stuff can be kind of thrown away quite easily and obviously you, you're still affected as a person changed as a person by what you've done and, and it shapes who you are but, but then nobody cares about that and it's quite um, I thought it's quite a, a nice comment on kind of life and how you, the kind of stages of life and how, how disconnected they can be sometimes there was some really, really... Sorry, on you go, Robert, are you? No, no, I, I was just going to say, sort of like, quickly looking back earlier on the film, it was a stark reminder of quite how much I fucking hate amateur dramatics. Um, <laughs> yeah. having, having, seen the football coach takes over. That's, that's <laughs> funny. <Yeah. laughs> He's like, you guys, you're rushing. You're rushing. He's screaming at them. They're all... all <laughs> the, white, the, white, the white stripes are singing. That's singing. That's singing, yeah. <laughs> Even now, you're quiet. You're quiet. You're quiet. You're sick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I, I think that uh, the the uh, the bold Danny deserves a wee mention in this as well. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly about what I was going to talk about. Yeah, go for but, it. Yeah, one of the most uh, one of the most touching scenes in, in the entire film is when he meets her behind the cafe really? um, to sort of try and explain himself, and she's clearly heartbroken, upset, and all that kind of stuff. But on just as soon as she sees how much sort of trouble he's in uh, within his own head. She she switches and she's like, no, of course, like, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm you know, I'm here to be a friend and all that. Kind of. I thought I was just, it was brilliantly acted first and foremost by uh, Lucas Hedges who played uh, Danny and Saoirse Ronan and, and just their relationship and the, the friendship that comes thereafter. I, I think it was just pitched. Really uh, um, you're right, because the next thing you sort of see them together it's after when they finish up high school and he comes, he comes, he sees her family and he just comes and sort of gives her a hug and stuff like that. And everyone's saying, Hey, Danny, how are you doing? Mm. So 
that was really sweet. And of course, that scene when they meet uh, behind the cafe, I'm sure, the scene immediately after that is the priest who is in with uh, Marion talking about some, could be an illness or something that he's, that, that he's got. Um, so I think by the sound of things, all unanimous absolutely love this movie. I mean, I absolutely like talk. There was other powerful scenes as well. The scene when uh, she finds out, uh, the mum finds out that she was on the waiting list. Yeah. I found that raw as anything when she was begging and begging and begging she's her mum. She just won't even look at her. Yeah, and, and she went like her mum's sort of that spiteful about it at that point. Um, I, like that was, I, I was, I nearly had tears in my eyes at that bit. And again, it, it's a subtlety of it because that's a really short scene. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't spin it for ages. Really looking for these emotional pulls, they're able to like gain that just because of the sort of inferred relationship between them, the things that you've noticed all through it, and the rawness of the acting at that point. I was just like, it was instant that, and the amount of times that I was laughing and then suddenly changing. To sort yeah. of be you know, a little bit heart wrenching. I think that's to, the, the ability to do that's part, it's such a difficult thing to do. Part of that scene when the, the waitlist is found out, when Danny comes in and spoils it, um, is a, a sort of really, really subtly and really quickly called back to another one of my favourite. I mean, you couldn't even, I don't know if you could even call it a scene. One of my favourite moments is when the dad is coming at the job interview and Miguel's going in. And he cuddles and he, yeah. He just puts his suitcase down, he sorts his tie out for him and just sort of touches him. Do you think they don't really touch on it? Sorry, that the the do you think Ladybird's adopted as well? Because I think they, they don't touch on any of the adoption that's clearly that's in the family. Um I, I was I had a little read about that and it's sort of never ever brought to brought to light like if anyone's been adopted in the family but you've obviously got to assume that Miguel was probably adopted and then obviously they were nice enough to bring his a girlfriend into the house, but there was a, there was a fan theory I saw that maybe Ladybird was actually adopted, and that's where the real difficulty comes in with with her mother and how she's so quite different, even though she was brought up by that family. Does she not have something when I, I, you, you only see it when the the father has put the the letters? You know, the mother tried to write a series of letters, and her dad put the letters into the suitcase. Aye, that's there's something there who says like. I had you like later in life, something like yeah. that. So I took from that. But you're right in terms of like Miguel's, Miguel's appearance is, and even his name is sort of like this slightly is, out of step with um, with the, the rest of his. Family. And it shows, and that shows you that sort of like the the between the mum, like the sort of different emotions that the mum has all the time, and the fact that she comes across like you were saying earlier, a bit of an arsehole. She doesn't seem to be quite supportive of things at the same time. But then you're learning things about the family. Uh, that are inferred that she obviously must be a, a wonderful woman. The kind of work she does on a daily yeah. basis would show that. Uh, the fact that she m- maybe has two, maybe three adopted kids. I mean, one, as I said, the Miguel, the adopted, they basically let his girlfriend live with them, and his dad refers to her as his, as uh, the other daughter. Uh, and like the, that showed like the maturity levels and the support mechanisms from those two people yeah. who have it tough themselves is. Uh, and as I say, that makes the mum sort of such a really rounded, interesting yeah. character. Of course, there's, there's a bit where the mum says she's like finishing a shift and someone says to her, I'll see you tomorrow. And she says, no, no, I'll see you later today. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah. so something like that, that kind of gives the, the idea that she's... The double shifts, yeah. She's doing double but, shifts or she's working a lot. That's, I, think, I think just generally the mum is really cleverly written because every time it is... Every time Ladybird is outside the context of the mum, she is the nicest, warmest woman that you can mm. see. When she's given a gift to her uh, colleague in the hospital, yeah. when she's meeting Annie for the first time, when she's talking to people at the checkout in the store, 
every single time the ladybird is outside of that context, you can see, you know, that this the, the mum is a, a wonderful, really nice, really kind woman. But obviously, once you put ladybird back into the context, that's when you see it pushes our buttons. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think that's really smart. And just touching on the the Miguel thing as well. Uh, after the job interview, uh, when they're all at the dinner table before Danny comes in and says about the wish list, uh, the wait list, sorry, um, just really quickly, just one liner, um, you know, well done to, well done to Ladybird for graduating high school and congratulations to Miguel on the job. Mm. So he got the job and they, they don't make a big deal out of it. It's just like, it's just the dad saying like, congratulations, son. The, the dad's a really good character, actually, whenever they talked about him, but just he's, he's kind of, you know, he's not, this, he's not central to it, but you kind of get a really good sense of him. Like he's constantly the one that's having to try and um, mediate, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, be- between the mother and daughter. And, and it's kind of, he obviously, you know, at the end with, with the cupcake for her birthday and all that, he's, he's kind of, you know, you, you see a kind of really touching relationship there, which is secondary to the, to the main one in the, in the film, but it's, it's nice as well. Definitely. So we're all agreed then, Ladybird, two thumbs up. Ah, superb, man. Superb. Yeah. Yeah, so recommend it to recommend it to anyone. People that are finishing up high school, all the way up beyond beyond my age as well. Thought it thought it was excellent, and and Robert, it's a great show because I'll be honest, I would never have uh, never have thought to watch it otherwise. So thank you very much. That's now cool. we finish up these podcasts as we normally do with what to watch. We're going to change it a wee bit. We're going to talk about watch to listen. Fuck, I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> now we'll finish up this podcast as we normally do with what to watch but instead of what to watching we'll be what to listening because we're going to be talking about a classic album that we think your ears would benefit from Craig Anderson what are you what to listening to so, so I could have tried to kind of come up with some cool answer here but if I'm, I, I was asked to talk about what I've been listening to and, yeah. and what I've been listening to the most in, in lockdown is uh, Carly Rae Jepsen's 2012 album Kiss yes um, yes. a, lot, a lot of people will tell you that the, um, the 2015 follow-up, Emotion, is a kind of better album. It's the one that's maybe a little bit more critically acclaimed. But I'm, I'm here to basically tell you why they're wrong. Um, I, I just think Kiss is about as close to a kind of perfect pop album that you could get. I, I just everything about it, I just, it's joyful, but there's kind of love aspects to it. There's kind of longing. There's just so much um, depth to an album, which at, at first listen out, you would think... It's just a you know a standard pop album, but when you listen to it over and over again, it's just really entertaining. I don't know if anyone else has uh, has listened to it a great deal. I uh, am uh, Carly Rae Jepsen's uh, Scotland fan group. I think I think it's just me to be honest. I, I fucking adore her. Um, there's tons of other guys that wear lumberjack shirts and have got shit beards as well that listen to Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> 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 you know, and if you are one of those people, please get in touch. Um, <laughs> I think. Um, Kiss is a fantastic album. It was kind of, I think, just about everyone's sort of mainstream introduction to Carly Rae Jepsen as well, because it had Call Me Maybe on it. Yeah, uh, and that and that's the thing, and and, and that's uh, I, I, the criticism of it is like it's it's been seen to be immature for like her age and all that. But I think when you actually listen to it, there, there is there is something to that, and especially um, the one with Justin Bieber as the girlfriend to track. I really don't like that one. I think it's very like it feels like it should be written by sixteen year olds, but um, beyond that, like I think there's a lot of depth, and like initially you think there's like an innocence to the album, but then you you, you listen to the subject matter, and it's like well, well not really, because it, it's essentially a lot of it about kind of cheating and these kind of illicit relationships, and and this kind of kind of broodingness almost to it, um, and and these thoughts and how they manifest themselves. And I, I just really 
the, the way it sounds is kind of different to most albums I would listen to. So you've got the um, just right at the start, the way it hits you, it, it, it plays the kind of Cupid by Sam Cooke, and it kind of rolls that into Tiny Little Bows, the first track. It just, it just really hit me the, the first time I listened to that album. I'm like, oh, this is not what I expected to hear here. And I think that carries on all the way through. You talk about Call Me Maybe, it's like a song that essentially was one of the songs of the decade. It was just constantly, I know, that, I know there's a video you, Craig Telfer, um, swinging around in an office um, from, from back in the day. Thank you. Uh, at m- miming out to that song. I'd like to draw some attention to that. I was a different person then. Um, but uh, yeah, you were lumberjacks in the church, and you had a <laughs> But um, I'd like—I mean, yes, it got overplayed. Obviously, it probably still does. But if a song gets overplayed, they generally do for a reason. It's because it's it's very good. Um, and then yeah, there's just so many things to it that, like this album, I I didn't really expect that I would like it, but then I really did, and I, and I can't stop listening to it. Um, the good good time with um, Owl City, I think, is just like a, a really catchy pop song. It's very cheesy, but the um, it's ad- apparently ad libbed as well. But the bit where she kind of goes woo, and that I, I, it's one of my favourite sounds from an an album. Um, I yeah. don't really know why, but I just really really like it. And I was listening um, the Song Exploder podcast where um, you get artists to break down their songs, and she was she was on talking about a completely different song. She was talking about how she would kind of do these ad libs while she was in the recording studio, and she would constantly be kind of encouraged by the director to go back and do them. And when when she was talking about that, that was the bit I immediately thought about. And yeah, it's just it's I, I'm not I'm not really generally good at talking about music. I don't understand. I, I don't play music myself. So I don't understand like instruments and how these things work and how the production works. But I just there's just so many bits to this album where like you can tell how much time must have gone into making it because everything is like engineered very precisely. And it, and it's kind of the opposite of the music I would generally listen to, you know, stuff like, you know, you've got the Arctic Monkeys and you listen to, because that was the other album I thought I would maybe talk about is like what, what people say, I'm, that's what I'm not, or sorry, whatever people say. I'm. And, it, and it doesn't have that. It kind of sounds like, you know, they've turned up with their guitars, gone into the studio, battled out 13 songs and left, whereas this sounds like it seems like it would have taken about four years to make. Well, yeah. it's, in, it's interesting. I, I, well, I'm a big fan of Carly Jepsen's stuff. I think This Kiss is a good song of the album, but I, I'd probably have to yep. say Emotion, in my opinion, is the, the better two. Because it's got Run Away With Me on it, and I think Run Away With Me is a, probably a legitimate shout for the best song of all time. Uh, <laughs> Tony Anderson, what are you what to listening to? Well, I took it where I was listening, I read the email eventually, um, that Philip sent out, and he was talking about a classic album that you have listened to. Um, so I was thinking more from my past and something that I've put on during lockdown very specifically uh, and I wanted to do something electronic simply because I do like listening to other music but because I, I don't think many people talk about electronic music in our group or when we do it I like to try and fly the flag for it because it never seems to come up in terms of uh, when we do our playlists and stuff so I went for an electronic album that I loved as a youngster so this album came out when I was about 17, 18 and it's uh, a Scottish producer Milo and it's uh, Destroy Rock and Roll uh, yeah glad, I'm really glad to hear that other people have listened to it. I'm sure I knew that Robert what happened, to Whatever happened to Milo because he made that album he was like, like Drop the Pressure and stuff was used extensively in loads of advertising campaigns 
and he never he never did anything else. That was two thousand seven, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I read, I read, I read up a little bit, and I and I've seen Milo since. Uh, I once saw him at a music festival in Aberdeen, which was done in a sort of beach format where they had fake <laughs> fake uh, sand and everything everywhere. But that's another story. Is he having you drinks at the bar? <laughs> and he was. Um, he. I said for what I've read about him, he became more of like a job and DJ. Uh, rather than right. someone like a producer who went and made it, he just it made music. He just sort of goes around off his name, if you like, and sort of just plays gigs. I don't, uh, I've never known him to make any other music. I've never heard of him producing. I could be wrong. I haven't went and researched it overly, but I've only seen him a couple of times uh, going to sort of dance music events, and he just sort of does a, a DJ set, and then and, and then off he goes, which I think is quite a sad thing. This is sort of like, the album's sort of like, uh, it's so very youthful. You can actually tell it's a guy who maybe isn't um, a connoisseur of, of, of dance music because the beauty in this album is its simplicity. Uh, the songs are, are pretty brash. They're, they're, they're feel good. Um, there's no subtlety to it whatsoever. It's really colourful. Uh, it's using like 80s synths. It's groove. It's disco. I mean, you could, it's the sort of album that if someone's never listened to electronic music before, I would pop them in front of that. Uh, and put the headphones on them, and I imagine that, that pretty much you would get a, a positive response from from anyone. And I think that's quite a powerful thing that he's done. Um, with that, um, the story behind the album, which people might like, is that it was actually his dissertation. It was uh, he done. It was done a music <laughs> course at university, and it was his dissertation. He handed it. This is the story, the legend. I don't know. This is what I've read, and that he handed the um, the sort of dissertation in, and the. So a teacher, the lecturer thought it was absolutely brilliant and used the sort of small, so in the music industry, managed to pass it on to the right person and it was loved and then it was, it was, he was signed to, to sort of produce the album and, and bring it out. Uh, but there's so many enjoyable songs on it. It's yeah. so easy to listen to. You, you, you can't not feel good. And in my arms, in my arms, my favourite one off. I absolutely love that. That sampled... Um, Betty Davis eyes. Betty Davis, yeah. The fall, it sampled the pair of them. So you talk about 80s vibes. And this yeah. is got two like classic eighties songs and 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 bring them together. It's a great song, great great accompanying uh, video with it as well. And it's kind of the, the album you can it's, it's so easy access because like album you could shut your eyes, you could imagine yourself floating. Uh, well, listen, to it. it's uh, as I said, I, I I I was a huge fan of it. It was one of my it's sort of early. T- it was like that and Daft Punk that were for, sort of my first forties into dance music as as a youngin, and it was a love that I had. Uh, still to this day, so that's I love the primal, the primalness of it all. I love the way it makes you feel, uh, and uh, the sort of like the simplicity of it all. Sometimes some people I think look at that as a negative, well as I look at that as a as a positive. As I could put on any time, and it'll transport me to a place. It'll give me a feeling, uh, and this album certainly does that. Very nice, Tony. That's a, that's a good way to round off. Uh, what's a what's a, a very good album? Uh, I've gone for. I'll be honest, I've not listened to a lot of music over the past few months because normally when I'm at the gym, I haven't been to the gym at all over the last three months. And it you can never guess. You can see no. You can see it in my shoulders, shite shoulders these days, shite biceps as well. Uh, but that's enough about my insecurities. But I, I normally listen to a CD when I'm at the gym or I'm going on the train to work. So uh, last night when I was going through the Rolodex in my brain to pick, pick an album, I actually settled on one of the most underrated albums of the nineties. It's Zuropa by U2, of course. No, 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 listen, listen, I probably won't, I'll just, I'll keep this brief because nobody here likes you too, but, but if you imagine 
if you imagine you two at their most grandstanding and triumphant, and probably imagine all the things that people really dislike you two for. Imagine uh, Zeropa is like a negative of that. It's probably them at their most uh, low key, their most underrated, their most understated. I'd say they've they. I'd done a lot of experimentation with electronica and industrial and sort of light dance music with Acton Baby at 1991. And that was a, it was a bit of a renaissance for the band who had really become a bit too serious uh, with Rattle and Hum and they'd become a, they disappeared up their own arses. Uh, but Acton Baby pulled them out of that and gave the band a bit of longevity. And Zeropa took that one step further. And it's just, it's a very, very easy album to listen to because it's, I always think that, that you two, particularly now, particularly over the last 20 years, when they underplay all the things that they're, they're probably most famous for, you get better results for it. And, and Zeropa, it's got two of my all-time favourite U2 songs in Lemon and Stay Far Away So Close, which was Stay Far Away So Close was originally written for Frank Sinatra but they adapted it uh, for, the, for themselves. Uh, and it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful little song. And it's not going to convince anyone who doesn't like the band already. And I can just see Robert Borthwick is just saying, hurry up and stop speaking so I can talk. <laughs> and that's exactly what I'm going to do. I just don't like you too, mate. I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> I apologise. I do not care. I, I do not. So you know what? I'm like Ladybird at the end of that scene where <laughs> like, uh, you two are shite. It's fine. Don't care. Um, so for me, um, on a couple of occasions, I have uh, been involved uh, on Twitter with uh, Tim Burgess's Twitter listening parties, um, which he does uh, pretty much every day, and I really enjoy them. Um, I think they're great. It's, it's a good way to listen to an album, uh, but also sort of see other people uh, talking about their memories and all that kind of stuff. You're not into uh, Telfer, and that's fine. That's fine. We're different people. Um, but one of them, uh, I, th I think the biggest one for me uh, was Frightened Rabbits, The Midnight Organ Fight. Um, and basically, it, it was a big one for me because since, uh, since Scott passed away, I've found it really hard to listen to Frightened Rabbits music, uh, just generally. So they brought out like a, a covers version, uh, a covers album of Midnight Organ Fight, um, which I found as like a sort of way in to listening to it. It's like Biffy Clyro did a cover. Uh, the National did a cover. There was all these sort of bands that, that were playing that song, but uh, but obviously indirectly. Um, but the the Twitter listening party was really good, and I think it, it put a different sort of slant on it because you're watching other people tweet in their memories, and it becomes more of a happier um, sort of callback rather than uh, being quite a sad thing. Obviously, uh, sort of uh, tying it into uh, into Scott's death and stuff like that. So I, I think that that's the biggest one for me is is it's one of my favourite albums of all time, regardless. Um, you know, I've, I, it's, it's the, you know, it was my introduction to Frightened Rabbit in like 2008. Uh, Modern Leopard was the first song by them that I've ever heard. It's the first song on this album. Um, so it is, it, it's, it's quite an important album to me anyway, but I think, yeah, it's, it's allowed me to listen to it just sort of freely again, uh, which, which, was, which was really nice because I, I have missed it. And it's just such... From start to finish, it's just such a brilliant album. Um, you know, it, it tells a story all the way through. The the lyrics, I think, when I first listened to it, certainly as a teenage boy, were, were incredibly relatable. I think that's what that's what his music and his lyrics were, were able to do uh, was was to relate to the the sort of awkward uh, the awkward <laughs> awkward guys uh, among us, which uh, obviously is, is certainly very much me. Um, but no, it, it's a fantastic album. 
and yeah, during lockdown especially, I've 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 found a space to be able to listen to it again. So it's for me, it's like I do. I, I can agree with you. Like find it more uncomfortable to listen to those albums now. Um, I, I generally find Midnight Organ fight okay because I kind of associate that with a. It, I mean, it's not because the lyrics are in no way that, but it, it seems a bit more carefree somehow mm. um, compared to some of the later stuff where where you yeah. kind of you see where it's going as such um, but I, I absolutely love Midnight Organ Fest it's one of my favourite albums as well and um, yeah, I, I remember seeing them in, in Sydney when I was over there and, and I assume the audience was mainly full of Scottish people and it was uh, just put on a good a good show every time every time I did see them like considering what was going on the, the performance and all that it, I don't uh, yeah it, it, um, a band I love listening to but yeah I think I think that that kind of stand really if you listen to it now, it's still an absolutely great album. I'm going to listen to it right through because it's something I've I've listened to Fighting Rabbit songs. I've uh, and I've seen Scott Hutchinson play sort of like an acoustic set when I was like really young, uh, and I've never really got into it that much. But it's just it's so it's an album that's so important to like close friends of mine that I feel like that there must be something I'm missing and maybe it is like actually piecing it all together and listening it right through rather than just sporadically listening to songs as I go. Because as you're describing it, Robert, it is sort of like it's a, it's a full story um, for the album. So I am going to listen to... I don't know if I'm going to do you too, Craig. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a deep think about it. But I'm definitely going to do um, Midnight Organ Fight from Frightened Rabbit and Carly Rae Epson I've always thought I've heard a lot of guys say it that I didn't really that, that you wouldn't normally think of with like pop music and I as a youngster was a huge pop music fan and I mean crap pop music but I was a big fan of it uh, so I think I am actually going to go and give both those albums a blast today yeah, yeah I'm going to get I've not listened to bits and pieces but never the whole album and if you want more stuff that sounds like Frightened Rabbit, Snow Patrol are definitely worth checking out as well. <laughs> they are a wee bit. They do sound quite similar. Um, but that was good. That was good fun. Uh, that, that podcast is, you could have watched Ladybird um, and gone to the, paused it and gone to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Which I would really advise is a better thing to do than listen uh, to. These seem, seem to get longer and longer and okay. longer. I think we'll need to start, start imposing a timeline. But I listen, when you're hanging out with friends, talking about stuff that really means a lot to you, then... Who, who cares so I'd like to thank everyone for, for taking part today Craig Anderson great to hear from you yeah likewise Tony Anderson same to yourself aye brilliant cheers thanks for having me and Robert Borthwick good to see you shove your snow patrol up your fucking arse mate <laughs> sounds like a peep show quote really <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to end it thank you very much take care and keep on listening and keep on giving us Patreon money we, we do need it thank you bye <laughs> <laughs> Podcast Network.